Over the course of this year, we've discussed many cases of psikat halacha b'shalat chak, many factors that poskim take into account in addition to their assessment of the simplest reading of the sources and their integration of the positions of previous authorities, their weighing of custom, and the like. Um, we've examined these factors that push Poskim to explore avenues of leniency or, to be fair, stringency, and diverge from what might be the simplest understanding of the sugya. We've also discussed cases in which poskim invoke not just halachic interpretation, whether of the normal or the or the uh, or the shahatchak variety, but also cases in which poskim explicitly relate not just to halacha but to policy, and questions of how poskim articulate policy, whether it's legitimate for them to present it as if it is halacha, or whether they must present it as policy rather than hide it behind the language of law when it's not in fact law. A point that needs to be made before we wrap up the year is the following. As we mentioned at the beginning of the year, it is a bit odd that halacha can be sensitive to some of these seemingly extraneous sources. After all, if we believe, as we do, that halacha is the divine system of law, and God has commanded us to do X or Y, so one might have thought that there should be limited flexibility in terms of the implementation of law, and each person, each posaic, would be bound to explore the sugya and paskin in accordance with the most likely interpretation of the sugya without taking into account these external factors. However, as we noted near the beginning of the year, as Rebbe outlines in several places, um, most extensively in his article Ma'enosh, the only way to understand the legitimacy of invoking these factors is to believe that halacha itself grants these factors weight in the halachic process. If we understand that halacha itself grants room to the integration of these factors, so then it makes sense that we're not going against halacha when we use these factors of shalat chak, but rather we are following the rules of psak itself. Perhaps a way... Of, uh, of understanding this is uh, is framing it with the greatest of the Shahat Chak that is found in Halacha, the case of Pikuach Nefesh. And we know, as the Gemara outlines in Sanhedrin, Ayindalid, all of the mitzvot bend and are even broken when it comes to Pikuach Nevesh, when it comes to saving a human life, with the exception of three, murder, idolatry, and various forms of sexual immorality. Ritzicha, Gilei Arayot, Shvichudamim, as well as in certain cases in which one is 
challenged to defend his faith in a public setting. How does one understand the exceptions, the three mitzvot for one for which one must give up his life? So the Sefer Achinuch in Mitzvah Reish Tzadivav writes as follows: Shoresh Mitzvah Zu Yadua. The basis of this mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, of sanctifying the name of God, is well known. Ki ha'adam onivra rak la'avod bor'o. A person was only created to serve his creator. Umi she'eno moser gufo al'avodar adonav e'nenu evet And one who does not give up his life for God is not a good servant. Servants would give up their lives to their masters. Now, at first glance, the chinuch is really quite quite strange because the chinuch takes it as a given that we should give up our life for mitzvot, and his logic seems to hold true not only for the three mitzvot for which one is obligated to give up his life, but for all mitzvot. If, in fact, the logic is that we are the servants of God, and therefore we must give up our life rather than violate the word of God, because that's what a good servant, that's what a good slave would do, that's what an evid would do for his master, so then why is that limited to three? And I think one must understand the chinuch as follows. That, logically speaking, in fact, we are obligated, or should have been obligated, to give up our life. No matter what happened. For any mitzvah in the Torah. Because in the end of the day, as we started with at the beginning of the year, if we believe that the Torah is from God, and therefore imbued with infinite value, even the violation of a minor, quote-unquote, law would be an infinite offense against the nature of the world. And therefore, logically speaking, there should be no exceptions. And no matter what, one should always attempt to keep the Torah. So how do we understand the fact that that's only true in three mitzvot? And I think what you have to say is that, according to the Chinuch, it's true that God could have demanded that we give up our lives for any mitzvah, but he didn't. But in those three mitzvot where he did, what the Chinuch is telling you is that you shouldn't go looking for a justification and say, look, logically speaking, I never have to give up my life for God. The demands of the Torah are never so extreme as to make me give up my life. And therefore, if there are three exceptions, I have to bend over backwards to explain how God could possibly demand that of me. What the Chinuch is telling you is the framing is really the opposite. That logically speaking, God could have demanded that you give up your life for any and all mitzvot. He didn't. Because God recognized the value of human life. But when God tells you that there are three exceptions, at a certain level, that is what was the given. Was that you should have been willing to give up your life. Now the truth is that on this point, Tosvot seems to believe not this way. And Tosvot in Sanhedrin, Ayin Dalet Amud Bet, and there are other sources that point in this direction as well, such as the Shittim Ekubetzid in Nidarim, 
which suggests that in fact the opposite is the case, that really if we had no source whatsoever, we would have assumed that all mitzvot were yavor v'ayyehareh, you could violate all mitzvot, if it weren't for the fact that the Torah, that to save your life, or it weren't for the fact that the Torah explicitly made three exceptions. But I'm using here the Chinuch more for framing. And the truth is that I think one could really bring Tosa and the Chinuch together in the following way and say that there's really two questions. What are we willing to do for God? What should we be expected to do for God? And what does God realistically want from us? And it could be that the Chinuch is speaking from the human perspective. That as servants of God, we should be willing to even give up our lives for God. From God's perspective, that was never in the cards. God wanted us to live. But the reason that that dual framing is important is because it reminds us that the only justification for us breaking the law, or in a much more mitigated factor, mitigated way, of poskening in ways that may not be the most logical, or the most likely, rather, interpretation of the sugya, is that God himself wanted there to be flexibility in the system because he recognized these principles. Hefzid, as we discussed in the last few weeks, Chilul Hashem, as legitimate reasons to affect the adjudication of law. And therefore, we should be ready in a case where even with all the straining of our intellectual abilities, we can't come up with a kulam to paskin in the stringent way Because in the end of the day, the only reason we're willing to even stretch the way we understand the sugya is because we recognize that God wants us to take these meta-factors into account when paskening. But in a case where even under with those considerations in mind, we can't with integrity come up with a kula, so then we revert back to our commitment that we follow God even when it is difficult, even when it is hard. And I think with that framing, we can understand many different aspects of Psikah Halacha but I want to focus on one that appears in the Sugya, which has in recent years become um, much discussed in Psak. Um, the question of Kavod Habriot, of human dignity and its role in Psak. So the Gemara in Brachot, Yutet HaMud Bet, Thuchaf HaMud Aleph, discusses the Sugya, V'amar of Yehuda Marav, HaMotzei Kilayim B'Vigdao, Poshtan Afil B'Shuk, Mai Taima, En Chochma, Ve'en Tuna, Ve'en Eitzala, Negen Hashem. Kol Makom Sh'yesh Chilul Hashem, En Cholkin, Kavod L'Rab. The Gemara says that if someone were to find Kilayim in his clothing, so then he would have to strip, even if he was in a public space, and then it cites the Pazog in Mishlei, because there is no wisdom, there's no understanding, there's no advice against God, and whatever, there's Chilul Hashem, so then you don't grant honor to any human being. And at first glance, the Gemara 
seems to outline that whenever there's going to be a tension between fulfilling God's will and human being suffering disgrace, obviously God wins. And if we stopped there, so then, as we said before, we would get an Echinuch-esque framing of halacha that, as important as these values might be, they can never affect the way we paskin, because in the end of the day, we're bound to follow God no matter what. And therefore, we can't take into account human dignity, monetary loss, etc. However, the Gemara then continues with an extensive discussion in cases where that's not the case. And if you skip down in that Gemara, the Gemara says, Human dignity is great because it pushes away a prohibition in the Torah. And the Gemara says, how could that be? Why do you just say that there is no wisdom against God? So the Gemara then answers, So he says, Rav Bar says, it's only rabbinic law that can be bent and can be overridden rather in cases of human dignity. And they laughed at him. Are you going to call that biblical? That's rabbinic by definition. So Amar Rav Kahana so if Kahana says, if a great man says something, don't laugh at him. In the end of the day, rabbinic law gathers its force from the Pazur of Lotasur. The exact parameters of that is the extensive Machlok at Rishonim. But at any rate, we can waive rabbinic law for, in certain cases, for kavod habriot. And then the Gemara gives cases where even in a biblical law, God seemed to have built in exceptions which reflect the value of kavod habriot. So the Gemara says, You can hide and not fulfill the mitzvah of Hashavah HaVeidah. So the Gemara says, if you're a Kohen and the lost object is in a cemetery and it would violate the laws of Tumat Kohanim or you're an elder, you're a sage and it would not be in accordance with your honor or you have your work greater than that of your friend so therefore you're allowed to hide. The Gemara says, why is that true? Says you can hide. So why don't we derive from there to all cases, even biblical law? So the Gemara says, no, this is a monetary law, and monetary law is different than ritual law. Now again, I don't want to go through a full analysis of the issue of Kodabrio, but I do want to point out methodologically what the Gemara is saying. And the Gemara is saying that first it says rabbinic law gives way to Kavadabriyot, but not biblical law. But then it says that biblical law itself has 
kavod habriot considerations built in, at least for monetary law. It doesn't prove anything about ritual law. But built in to biblical law are considerations of kavod habriot. Now that obviously doesn't mean that we are allowed to invoke kavod habriot to override biblical law. But it does mean, as we already saw in the case of Hesed, the Gemara is discussing Kavod HaBriot at different, and it's different manifestations. Sometimes it's in cases of overriding rabbinic law. Sometimes it's the motivation for biblical law. And I would add factor three, which is even though the Gemara here doesn't discuss it explicitly, as we saw with Hefzid, sometimes Hefzid Merubah acts to motivate biblical law. Sometimes it acts to motivate the nature of rabbinic legislation, but for a posaic who does not have the ability to override a law, but he is in the role of paskining halacha, of adjudicating halacha, the fact that kavod abriot motivates rabbinic, uh, biblical law, allows for the suspension of rabbinic law, should also affect the type of analysis and the type of moves he might be willing to make in psak halacha, not to break halacha, but, per, but to apply flexibility to the system. And Rav Luchensin makes the point that even if in the end of the day the Gemara concludes that you can't actually override biblical law for Kavod Abriot, you can only override rabbinic law. Rhetoric is important. And the fact that the Gemara frames the law, that you can override rabbinic law because of Kavod Abriot, not as you're allowed to override rabbinic law, but Kavod Abriot is great because it overrides a biblical prohibition, even if the Gemara then says that means a rabbinic prohibition, the fact that the Gemara framed it with such strong rhetoric is meant to teach you that this is at least something very important that should mold and affect the way you paskin halacha. Again, maybe not legitimating the extreme manifestation of suspension of the law. But when you're paskining halacha, just like we saw with Hefzid Merubah, those factors that the Gemara recognizes as being relevant to the formulation of biblical and rabbinic law, must at least be a relevant factor in the adjudication of law, if at a lower level. Now it should be noted that in the Yerushalmi there, in Brachot Gimel Aleph, the Yerushalmi does seem to conclude that under certain circumstances, even biblical law can be suspended for um, due to the concern of Kavod HaBriot, There's also much discussion when it comes to Kavod Briot as to the exact um, the exact implementation of it. Um, what about passive cases? Um, Passive cases of biblical law, and therefore you have a machloket between the Rambam and the Rush as to whether the same halacha 
that the Gemara says that if one finds Kilaim in his own clothes, he would be obligated to take off his clothes, whether that would be the case if one discovered that someone else was wearing Kilaim in their clothes, would one be obligated to inform the other person uh, or not? Or in such a case, because the other person at the moment doesn't know when it's accidental and therefore passive to continue wearing it, would it be perhaps permitted to allow them to continue wearing their clothes or not? And the, again, the exact parameters of Kavoda Briot are an important discussion. But what I want to focus on for the broader question is a, is a uh, discussion that Rav has later in his article in Ma'enosh. And here, again, I think his formulations help us understand some overarching issues in Psak. And he notes that all the examples that we find in the Gemara are cases where the violation of Kavod briot is incidental to the Halacha. Meaning, wearing shatnas or not wearing shatnas does not intrinsically violate the honor of the human being. If one happens to find Kilayim in his clothes while he's in public and it would require him to strip so then that would be a case in which keeping the laws of Kilaim would be in tension with Kavoda Briot. And there the Gemara can at least discuss the question of whether Kavoda Briot should override that law or not. And that is a discussion that can be had because by recognizing the value of Kavoda Briot, one is not challenging the legitimacy of the law itself. One simply saying that Halacha recognizes the value and dignity. Halacha recognizes shatnas. There are certain cases in which the two come in tension, not in a fundamental way, but an accidental way. And then we need to deal with balancing two values that are both recognized by Halacha. But one can never take a factor of of value that halacha recognizes and use it to undermine the halacha itself. Meaning someone can't say, I won't keep or recognize the legitimacy of the entire category of X because it violates a meta-principle of kavod briot. And this is for the reasons that we started with, which is that the very fact that we recognize pikulach nefesh, hefsed merubah, kavod briot, whatever the value might be is because the Torah itself says that those are important values. If they didn't, then, as the Chinuch says, we would have to be willing to give up everything for God, up to and including our lives. It's only the fact that God doesn't expect us to go that far that allows us to recognize these extenuating circumstances in our formulation and adjudication of halacha. And therefore, it is never legitimate to take one of these meta-values recognized by halacha and then to turn back to a law and say that this law in its entirety is illegitimate. And here's our Lachlan writes it. One major qualification does suggest itself, however. The quest for, for amity can justify overriding norms only when the source of friction is not itself a halachic issue. 
If a domestic or social quarrel can be patched up by temporarily overriding a specific law, it is conceivable that a dispensation may be in order. Such a dispensation no way undermined the authority of Allah as a whole. Rather, on the basis of that very authority, it momentarily suspends one section in favor of another. However, when friction is rooted in a direct challenge to the validity of halakha, it is inconceivable that his proponent should always back down in the entrance in the interest of Irenicism. From the biblical period down, Jewish history affords ample evidence that when necessary, the Torah community has fought rather than submit, nor could it have been otherwise. With the halakha itself under attack, uh, to, under attack to yield, rather than risk possible schism, is to adopt the most naive form of pacifism. In effect, it entails knuckling under to the, th- to the threat of force or blackmail, allowing the halakha's desire for peace to be exploited to the point of eroding its very foundations. As such, concessions become clearly unconscionable. There are times when the halakha's concern with peace may itself require a struggle. Whatever is written in the Torahs of the Midrash was written for the sake of peace, and although wars are cited, the wars too were written for the sake of peace. This is not to suggest that a battle must be waged on every issue. At times, compromise may not only be acceptable, but desirable. Religiously, ethically, and or tactically, the game is not always worth the candle. All I am suggesting is that any decision concerning resistance or accommodation must be based on a number of halachic and tactical factors, communal context, the nature and motivation of the opposition, and so on. And with an eye to the long-range realization of ethical and religious ideals, it cannot be imposed as an absolute halachic imperative, better, better yield than quarrel. And later on, Rav Luchensin applies this specifically to Kavod Briot and Shalom. He says, our attempt to define Kavod Briot and Shalom is not arrived at a truly f- precise formulation, one which could be readily applied at a practical level. Whatever the exact definitions, however, one point seems fairly clear. The dispensations warranting by these factors have not, not been sufficiently recognized. Wherever any reasonable line must be drawn, we have collectively strayed far on the side of caution. Precisely because these concepts are so amorphous and their application so potentially sweeping, poskim have generally been reluctant to resort to them as grounds for overriding halachic norms. Their reluctance is thoroughly understandable. Inasmuch as these concepts lend themselves to widespread and dangerous abuse, one naturally tends to stifle even their legitimate application. No doubt, in the modern period, particularly as organized attempts at the irresponsible manipulation of halakha have, been mater- have actually materialized, the urge to tone down elements then reckless hands could undermine its entire structure have become almost impossible. One suspects that in some instances, even when the primary basis of a decision has been kabod abriyot or shalom, a posek has preferred, wherever possible, to advance narrower, formal, or technical grounds rather than encourage this use, the use and potential abuse of general dispensations. Nevertheless, this conservatism, however laudable in motive and intent, is not with own, without its own dangers. Elements such as kabod abriyot and shalom are central to a Torah veltansham, a fact to which their legitimate and limited role in suspending certain halachic norms clearly attests. Yet, the reluctance to permit them to play that role tends to downgrade their position. And here, Luchensin outlined the two opposite dangers of using these principles. On the one hand, as he says, the legitimacy of using these principles must emerge from a recognition that God has the right to demand everything 
anything and everything from us if he so chooses. The fact that he does not, the fact that he builds into the system factors which override the law, motivate the limitation of the legislation of certain laws that are both a biblical and rabbinic law, legitimate the use of these factors to provide flexibility within the halachic system. However, the legitimacy of using those factors come from God himself. And therefore, it is illegitimate to attack a halachic law because one believes that it violates one of these meta-principles, which again, are only legitimate factors in Psaq because halacha recognized them as such. And therefore, these factors, whether it be Kavroda, Briot, or Shalom, or Hefzid, Merubah, or the like, can and should be invoked at every level. Interpretation of law, legislation of law, the paskening of halacha, the institution of policies, but they can never be used to override law or challenge the legitimacy of a law. But the second factor that Rebbe Chansi notes is also important, which is that even in a case in which there are people who are misusing these principles and using these principles to override the very legitimacy of law, as much as that is an assault on the halachic system, to not recognize the legitimacy of these factors is also to fail to appreciate the complexity and the totality of the halachic system because halacha does include these factors, does present a very complicated view of halacha in which there are legitimate grounds for being more lenient than might otherwise be allowed because of these external factors. And to not bring them into consideration is to fail to take into account the complexity and the totality of the values that the Torah wants you to take into account. Again, as I mentioned before, the Luchensin said there's so much power in the rhetoric of that the Gemara does not merely state as it does in comparable cases elsewhere, that Kavod Abriot overrides the usual norms in certain situations. It states, rather, great is human dignity, so that it overrides a negative precept of the Torah, and the rhetoric should point you in the, fa- to the in direction that it must be considered. And this, I think, again, without getting into all the details of what counts as Kavod Abriot and what does not, it is critical to remember that when it comes to all the factors of extenuating circumstances in Psaq, one must always, on the one hand, recognize that there is a limit to how one can use those factors to override law, to interpret law, because in the end of the day, the legitimacy of using those factors in the legislation and adjudication of law comes from the halacha itself. And therefore, there are obviously going to be limits. One can never use those factors to undermine the legitimacy of a law in its entirety, Because that shows that one does not believe that these factors gain their credibility and their power from halacha itself. But on the other hand, even when people are misusing these factors, that shouldn't scare a posseg off from using them. 
Because they were, they're there for a reason. Because Allah cares, God cares about the monetary well-being of the Jewish people, of human dignity. And often the, the difficulty in paskening B'Sha'at Chak is finding the proper space between these two poles, between overusing these factors to the point where one is undermining the halachic system itself and underusing them to the point where these factors that halacha wants to be integrated into a full picture of divine will fall out of use and fall out of a holistic understanding of what God wants. And again, Ruchensin's example here was Kavoda Briot and Shalom, but I think it's true of all of the instances of Psikar Alacha and highlights just how complex it is to articulate a halachic decision that is true to the competing forces that exist in every halachic question.